The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week we talked to Mark Spiegler about the cancellation of Art Basel Hong Kong and with Catherine Wood of The Tate we pay tribute to Ulai, the performance artist who died on 2nd of March. First, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper and from there you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, in ordinary circumstances, Hong Kong would have expected the art world to descend on it in two weeks' time, as the Art Basel Fair opened in the city. But last month, Art Basel announced that it was cancelling this year's event due to the coronavirus. Our Deputy Art Market Editor, Margaret Carrigan, sat down this week with Mark Spiegler, the Global Director of Art Basel, to discuss the decision and how the company's dealing with the effects of the cancellation. Mark, Art Basel was one of the first major luxury events to cancel in light of coronavirus, and now that's obviously become a little more standard over the past few weeks as the virus has spread globally. Um, Beijing's Jing Art canceled, and then MCH, Art Basel's parent company, of course, postponed its watch event, Basel World, uh, not to mention the push on the Hong Kong and New York's Asia Week auctions. So what remains paramount in these decisions is, of course, the health and safety of everyone involved uh, in what is increasingly a global issue. But in the lead-up to the decision to cancel Art Basel Hong Kong, there was a lot of trepidation among exhibitors, especially those coming from abroad. But there are a ton of considerations that go into an event of this magnitude. Thousands, if not millions of dollars are committed to it well in advance, not to mention the ecosystems of staff and ancillary industries surrounding the production of the fair. How difficult is it to be responsive to something as swiftly developing as an international health crisis? This is obviously a complex topic, and and you stated it quite rightly, that there are so many different levels to this kind of decision. I mean, in retrospect, obviously, it feels like that's the only decision we could have taken. Um, But of course, it was a very fast-moving situation, and there are an enormous number of angles to it, you know, especially in the case of Art Basel Hong Kong, given its position within the art market and specifically within the Asian art market. It's not a decision you can take lightly. So, of course, you have to consider the impact it has for your exhibitors, for their artists, for the broader ecosystem of the region, you know, also for the exhibitors from the rest of the world, you know, for many of whom um, Art Basel Hong Kong had really become one of the major affairs in terms of their revenue, in terms of their promotion. Um, they'd invested a lot of time in the region. Um, so as we faced the decision, we had – the sense of how important it was, the magnitude of what it would mean if we had to cancel. And at the same time, day by day, it became clearer that the health risks involved were only accelerating, were only intensifying. And another thing that we had to consider was the sort of knock-on effects, you know, that, that it wasn't just the risk of health and safety, but also the fact that even if somehow the virus had miraculously disappeared a week before the show, at the time that we had to make the decision, you were having flights shutting down, you were having manufacturing facilities shutting down, you were having labor shortages, you were having um, visa issues that people were going to be facing just to get into Hong Kong. And so, you know, obviously, uh, the implications of the virus were also creating a lot of risk factors that we couldn't control and that we couldn't, frankly, you know, accept. In the end, it wasn't a very long time period. I came back from Hong Kong on the 17th of January. 
And I had spent a week there. And I had spoken with collectors. I'd spoken with our team in Asia about their conversations with collectors throughout the region. I had spent a week living and working in Hong Kong. And I had the sense that despite the political arrest that had, had you know, happened within the city, it was a very functional city. There were very few logistical issues. The only issue that I faced was that when I went to the airport to leave, I had to show my passport and boarding pass before going into the airport. So I left on the 17th of January confident that it was the right thing to move forward with this show. And it was only around the 26th or 27th of January that this became an issue which clearly had the potential to force us to cancel or postpone the show. Um, And of course, 10 days later, we had canceled the show. But what happens in the intervening period? So what happens in the intervening period is you're constantly consulting people. You're watching the news. You're trying to figure out what what's going on with the virus itself and what's going on with, with all the knock-on effects. There were people who wished we'd taken decisions sooner, I think, in many cases because they were getting a lot of pressure from their staff. You know, People were afraid that they were going to be forced to go to the show against their will or against their good judgment. And, of course, we never would have done that in, in a situation where there were, were very high medical risks. At the same time, of course, there's a political dimension, which is that uh, if we had taken – if we had been seen to take the, the decision too lightly, too quickly, a lot of people in Asia would have felt that we were just there when the good times were going and that we were just there um, – we, we were fair-weather friends. And I think we've invested far too much in that region, as have our galleries, for that decision to be rushed or to feel rushed. And I think by the time we took it, nobody questioned – that it was the only choice. The other two major factors were, you know, one, that we wanted to see if there was, was a possibility to postpone the show to a later date when perhaps the, the coronavirus issues would have dissipated. The reality is we just didn't have the space. The Hong Kong Convention Center is highly occupied, and there just wasn't space to do the show in the dimensions that we would have wanted to do it at a later date in the year. And then the third dimension um, is that because Art Basel belongs to a publicly traded company, when you take a decision of this magnitude, you have to you know, go through all the due diligences involved. You have to get things in writing. You have to make sure that you're not um, causing various unnecessary risks for the company at a financial or legal level. You have to speak with your board of directors. You have to speak with the executive board of the company, which I'm part of. Um, and then, of course, you can't release the news when the stock market is actually open. So there was a level of complexity to the decision, but also to the execution of the decision that made it more complicated than people thought. You've introduced a digital consolation to the corona crisis at this point, which is the launch of your online viewing rooms. And this new platform will allow Hong Kong exhibitors to show and sell the works that they intended to bring to the fair. And that's opening the 18th of March through the 25th. Um, And it's something you had in development for some time already. And you moved up the launch of in light of the recent crisis. So what was the original impetus behind this platform? And how is it going to bear out for Hong Kong exhibitors, hopefully? I mean, I guess I don't, I don't like the word Consolation. I think you know. For us, it's it's something. It's a sort of countermeasure um, in a very difficult situation where a lot of people had had work made or had consigned work or had held work back for the show. And you know, from our perspective, obviously, everybody has to consider what is the impact of the digital in their business. And and you know, in our case, what can you do on behalf of your exhibitors within this realm? So we had been discussing for years 
what we could do. And of course, we've done a lot of things. We've done a, very, been very active with social media. We've have this online catalog, which has more than forty thousand works from past fairs, and. We had seen, obviously, that some of the major galleries were doing things like these online viewing rooms. But I think for, for many of our galleries, the, the, the time and the investment required is just too high for them to do that. And we had discussed very closely with our committee members, with whom we discuss all very, you know, very relevant decisions, what we could do in this space. And we had all agreed that the idea of having a kind of parallel space where – People could put works that were not actually going to be at the fairs, or certainly not all at the fairs. Um, at the time of the fairs would be a good way to sort of leverage that moment of urgency that happens around a fair. In a way, I think about it as a digital version of the cabinets, the, you know, these projects that galleries do in conjunction with their spaces in the main gallery section of the fair. And so – Unfortunately, because of the cancellation of the Hong Kong show, you couldn't do something in parallel to the booth because there was no booth. So we, you know, we pivoted pretty quickly on this and said, well, the software is there. You know, we need to push it forward to make sure that it's ready you know, to launch in, in, uh, you know, at the time of the Hong Kong show. But we're going to change the rules you know, in this initial iteration. Are you able to comment on how many – like what percentage of the Hong Kong exhibitors are interested in using it? We're still in the process of registering people, but I will say that we've had extremely strong uptake on this. And in some cases, people I've seen in New York in the last week have said, yes, I want to do it. We've just been too busy. And so, I mean, there's they're very, there's no one I've talked to who said, I don't want to do this. You know, I think it's a question of how. There's a lot of discussion about strategies, what price points, what type of work fits, et cetera. And I think what we'll see in this initial launch is a lot of people experimenting. And I think just as we see... In a physical fair, a lot of people will be studying each other's booths and then calling each other and saying, is this working? Is that working? You know, what kind of traction are you getting? And so I think it will be intellectually fascinating to see the approaches that people use and which approaches work best and how those are adapted by other people. Because although there's a limit of 10 works per booth, you can switch them out. So in theory, you could rehang your booth every day or even every hour. And certainly you can replace works that have been sold. And, you know, if you see other strategies being used by galleries than the ones you're using, you can adapt your strategy. This is something that would have happened anyway. And obviously, it's happening in a slightly different way because of the conditions around the cancellation of the Hong Kong show. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very exciting moment. And a lot of people are really eager to try this for the first time. And of course, there are two huge benefits to this in terms of our gallerists. One is that we will use our full marketing power to promote this project, you know, social media, press, VIP teams, et cetera. Uh, I know for a fact that there are people who are planning to have online viewing room parties, you know, where basically everybody will get into a room and have some, you know, have some wine and have some food and then open up their laptops and see what's in the booths. The other benefit is that during the first two days and then also afterwards, when a VIP contacts one of the galleries to inquire about buying a work, they will know the price range of the work, you know, so they're not coming in blind. And the gallerist will, unless the VIP opts out, will be able to see who is this person, where are they from, and what is their history in terms of VIP cards that are shown. So they'll have some sense of who this person is contacting them about the work. Of course, they'll still have to do the normal work of deciding, do I want to sell this work to this person? And so I think this will be 
slightly different perhaps than some other online platforms, you know, but of course every, every platform has its different environment. So the online sales platform is available to Hong Kong exhibitors for free, but then you'll be unrolling the original concept for the Basel edition of the fair in June. Do you think that it will have kind of caught on um, by that time? And also, what do you think, do you think there'll be added um, interest in the Basel edition this year because we are having to forego Hong Kong? We certainly hope that the first edition of the online viewing rooms will go very well and that people will see it as a valuable additional way to promote works to our VIPs during the fair period. Um, looking broader, I mean, I know for a fact that there are a lot of collectors who plan to go to Hong Kong and who now plan to go to Basel because for them, the Art Basel Fairs represent a, a breadth and quality of work that they want to engage with in order to build our collections. You know, I think it's, it's, it's interesting for us when we look at the arc of Art Basel you know, since 1970, you know, how it's developed. I think in, in the, let's say, the first half, the first 25 years, it was primarily a trading platform. It was a place where you, it was basically the, the sellers of art and the buyers of art. And then, especially with the launching of Art Basel Miami Beach in 2002, we engage more and more with the city. You know, it was not just a fair in a hall. It was a week in a city. And that was really important in terms of interacting with institutions, in terms of building a program that went from 8 a.m. to midnight, in terms of attracting people who were not just buying and selling, but also people who were interested in intellectual exchanges, in networking with other people. You had started to have a lot more curators who were coming to show, a lot more museum directors, um, a lot more artists. And then, you know, about 10 years later, but especially when we went to Asia and when we engaged more and more with the internet, you know, Art Basel becomes more of a pervasive presence within the art world. You know, we're, we're doing other projects. We did projects like Art Basel Cities. We did, you know, the Art Market Report that comes out shortly, you know, which is in a lot of ways the definitive report on the state of the art market. And obviously we do a lot of uh, social media work. We do a lot of editorial work now. And so in a sense... Art Basel is present in a very different way than it was 10 years ago. And I think, you know, for me, the online viewing room is yet another, you know, part of us playing a different role within the art world that we have and saying we're not just going to offer our galleries a chance to promote their work in their booth during the fairs, but we're also going to use the moment of the fairs as a time to promote work that might not have fit in the booth, you know, intellectually or physically. And so in essence, I think it will allow gallerists to display a kind of curatorial or intellectual side of their practice um, that you would see traditionally in the cabinet sector, for example. You know, if they have access to a special artist or if they have a special kind of knowledge, or if they want to showcase uh, an artist who they've just started to work with, or if they want to showcase an artist who they feel has been underestimated historically, you know, this will be a chance for that. So going forward, we've seen financial markets wavering over the past two weeks, and it's clear that coronavirus isn't going to go anywhere quickly. Um, and on a broader market level, there is a lot of concern over how this will all affect supply chains for months and years to come and, you know, undercutting revenue and investment and all sorts of industries. In that regard, I'm wondering how you think this might play out for the art world on a broader scale. I think this is one of those cases where the art world is so tied into the quote-unquote real world that, you know, you would have to be not just versed in what's going on in the art world, but also have a clear sense of the medical, economic, 
sociopolitical implications. And I don't have that. And I think there are a lot of people right now in the context of the coronavirus who are speculating about things they don't really understand and making predictions that they have no business making. And I don't want to be another one of those people. What's clear is that we'll have an impact. And what's also clear is that we're in a moment where we have to think about different scenarios. We also have to be conscious of the thought that any scenario that we're thinking about may become completely irrelevant. I mean, what's amazing to me, and I first experienced this when we were dealing with it for ourselves and dealing with our possible Hong Kong cancellation, but what's amazing to me is to think that a week ago was when things started to really kick off in Europe. You know, that, that the weekend before, everything was fine in Milan. And it was really a week ago that all of this started, you know. And now the Louvre is closed and many, if not all, of the flights between northern Italy and North America have shut down. And, you know, there was a moment where Italian trains were getting stopped going into Austria. And so when things move that fast, you know, I think on the one hand, you have to think about everything it could mean, but you also have to be conscious of the fact that everything you think you know may prove to be irrelevant or wrong. You know, it's it's kind of those listeners who are parents know that the difficulty with raising children is just when you think that you figured them out, they change. It's a similar situation here in a much less joyful way. You know, um, the conundrum for all of us is that things are moving so fast that we can easily waste a lot of time trying to imagine what's going to happen next and then being completely wrong. You can access the Art Basel online viewing rooms at artbasel.com slash viewing rooms. A bit later, I'll be discussing Ulai, but first, here are a few of the top stories on our website. The coronavirus outbreak continues to prompt cancellations and closures across the international art world. The Louvre closed last weekend after staff expressed concern about the risk posed by the number of people visiting the museum. It reopened on Wednesday, but among other measures, staff will no longer have to move among the crowds in the Salle d'Etat, the room where people throng to see the Mona Lisa. Meanwhile, the Art Dubai Fair was postponed, though a programme of exhibitions, events and talks tailored to Dubai-based galleries, museums and artists will take place from 25th to 28th of March. And the Venice Architecture Biennale, which was due to open in May, has been postponed until August. The New York fairs have gone ahead this week, though, with Margaret Carrigan reporting from the Armoury Show that sales on the piers were as steady as the flow of hand sanitizer throughout the VIP day. Trade conflicts between the US and China, political unrest in Hong Kong and a protracted Brexit all contributed to a 5% dip in the global art market in 2019, which totaled $64.1 billion. This is according to the Global Art Market Report, published this week by Art Basel and the bank UBS. Overall, the UK market, which accounted for 20% of global sales, or $12.7 billion, fell by 9%. British dealers reported a drop in revenue of 4%, while the UK auction market slumped by 20% to $4.3 billion. Sales in the auction market in mainland China fell by 9%, while in Hong Kong this decline was even more pronounced at 25%. Overall, the Chinese market fell by 10% to $11.7 billion, while the perennially dominant US market dropped by 5% to $28.3 billion. It was a tricky year, but not disastrous, said the author of the report, the cultural economist Claire McAndrew. 
And finally, a London conservation studio has unveiled a painting newly attributed to Artemisia Gentileschi. The portrayal of David and Goliath was attributed to Giovanni Francesco Guerrieri, a student of Orazio Gentileschi, Artemisia's father. But when it resurfaced in 2018 at an auction in Munich, the work came under scrutiny from scholars and dealers and was reattributed to Artemisia. The private conservator Simon Gillespie and Italian scholar Gianni Papi make the case for the new attribution in the latest issue of the Burlington magazine. David and Goliath is not in the National Gallery's Artemisia exhibition opening in April, but Gillespie will show it at his studio at 104 Bond Street, London, during the show. You can read all these stories and our live reporting for the New York Fairs at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back with Catherine Wood of The Tate after this. Most of us look at a bridge and see its function as a crossing point. Some perhaps see its history and architectural merit. But when the contemporary artist Christo looked at the Pont Neuf, Paris's oldest bridge, he saw an opportunity. In 1985, Christo and his wife and collaborator Jean-Claude wrapped the Pont Neuf in 450,000 square feet of woven polyamide gold fabric. In place for only 14 days, the installation was seen by more than 3 million people. Now, a large preparatory drawing for the project, the Pont Neuf Wrapped Project for Paris, in two parts from 1979, will be offered at Bonham's Post-War and Contemporary Art Sale in London on the 12th of March. The global head of Bonham's Post-War and Contemporary Art Department, Rafe Taylor, commented, This large-scale vision is both an important document of a monumental temporary project and an impressive standalone work. With the forthcoming Centre Pompidou exhibition dedicated to Christo and Jean-Claude's Paris period focusing on the Pont Neuf project, and with Christo's wrapping of the Arc de Triomphe set for this autumn, this is a particularly exciting time for this work to come to the market. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, on Monday the 2nd of March, it was announced that Ulai, the German artist best known for his trailblazing performance art collaborations with Marina Abramovich, had died. He was 76 and had had cancer of the lymphatic system for some years, even making a documentary about his illness. Born Frank-Uwe Leisiepen in 1943 in Solingen, Germany, he first gained attention as a photographer in Amsterdam, making several now widely acclaimed photographic series in the early 1970s. But it was when he met Abramovich in 1975 and began collaborating with her that he made his best-known work. They separated in 1988 and he continued to work in photography and performance for the rest of his life, though failing to match Abramovich's stellar ascent to widespread fame. The couple had not spoken for many years before he sat opposite her in 2010 during her performance The Artist is Present at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. They cried and joined hands in front of a huge audience. But then in 2015, Ulai sued Abramovich in a Dutch court, claiming that she'd violated a 1999 contract covering the works that they'd created together. The case resulted in Abramovich being ordered to backdate royalties of more than €250,000, as well as more than €23,000 in legal costs. However, there was a happier ending. The two were reconciled once more in a documentary made in 2017, the story of Marina Abramovich and Ulai. Following Ulai's death, Abramovich paid tribute to him on Instagram. It is with great sadness I learned about my friend and former partner Ulai's death today, she posted. He was an exceptional artist and human being who will be deeply missed. On this day, it's comforting to know that his art and legacy will live on forever. Catherine Wood is a senior curator of international art focusing on performance at Tate Modern, and she joins me now to discuss Ulai and his work. Catherine, I wonder if you could just begin by uh, giving us an idea of the statue of Ulai and his his contribution to performance art. Well, Ulai's, as you know, best known really for his collaborations with Marina Abramovich, But actually, I think it's important to look back at the point at which they met in Amsterdam in the mid-70s. 
he already had established this quite interesting practice that was part of that generation identified with the Transformer exhibition that took place in 1974 in Luzerne. He wasn't in the show, as far as I know. Um, the catalogue doesn't have a list of works and it's a little bit of a mystery. But um, he was definitely an artist who was already at that point exploring questions of gender, fluidity, um, masculinity, vulnerability, uh, drag, cross-dressing, in ways that were quite radical and actually quite controversial. And in his early shows in that context in Amsterdam, the work did cause controversy. Can you say what kind of, like, you know, in terms of like a controversy within the art world or a kind of public controversy? I believe within the art world. And it was related to work he'd been doing um, documenting underground communities in Amsterdam, transvestite communities, transsexual, using, you know, he'd come to his own practice performing for the camera as a photographer and he'd then turned it on himself. And I think it was the vulnerability he was then exposing in his position as a male artist was somehow shocking in a context of feminism as well. There were questions around that kind of practice as in, as a straight white man, what, you know, you could turn on this identity as a, a woman part-time and then take it off again. And I think there are political questions around that from a feminist community as well. That's really interesting. And uh, can you say something more about the Transformer show? Because it, it's it's seen as a... And, and in fact, there have been sort of semi-reconstructions of that show in recent years. But it, it is this sort of incredibly important moment in the mid-70s where there is a kind of um, central European gathering of artists working in similar themes, similar with similar ideas and similar media. Yes, So the and the Transformer show was important for an exhibition I curated at Tate Bigger Splash in 2012 and Glam at Tate Liverpool. And then it was reconstructed with a degree of poetic licence recently as well, bringing in some forgotten artists. It was a show um, taking its title from Lou Reed, and what was interesting about it, I think, was that it crossed over between quite mainstream artists, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, and a kind of glam rock aesthetic on the one hand, and then pretty experimental artists. Katerina Sieverding was one of the only women artists in it. Um, artists like Jürgen Klauke, Urs Luti, experimenting with the face as a and the body as a site of creativity, a site of experimentation and image making in a kind of proto image culture. And I think it represents a really important step from a kind of 60s body art and ideas of authenticity towards a queer manipulation of the image surface that's very, very legible to a young generation of artists today and to a kind of Instagram generation. And I think that accounts for the revival of that show and the interest in it. And um, there's two works in the Tate collection that by Ulai from that period and they're actually really instructive of the kind of themes that you're talking about there aren't they yeah the works soliloquy and shh it's written s apostrophe h e s slash h e yeah actually it's you're right it's written differently in different places but you see him in the photograph half as a woman with red hair and red lipstick or i say as a woman but i mean in feminine uh, attire and makeup um, and then the other half as a, a man smoking a cigarette <laughs> and he he talked about 
things, um, I mean, I think he was interested in, and Amelia Jones has written about this, the sort of vulnerability in exposing the extent to which your inner self might not match with your external presentation to the world. And he talked in some ways about failing both roles, sort of desire to appear as a woman, but failing that, and yet a desire to be masculine and failing that too in certain societal ways. That's really interesting. And this was the guise in which Marina Abramovich meets him in 1975 Mm. in Amsterdam. And she was clearly really attractive, but also sort of, it seems like as somebody who'd come from Yugoslavia and had been quite protected in some ways, she was sort of mystified by this character you know enormously attracted to him but also he was he was sort of a denizen of a world which she had not previously really had much access to this sort of underground counter counterculture yeah and it's interesting to think about the power dynamics there um, and the rather sweet story that he tended to her wounds after she'd performed the uh, rhythm piece where she cuts a star into her stomach that's right with a with a razor blade she cuts a five-pointed star into her stomach and he looked after her yeah but um so at that point i think what was probably thrilling and quite electric for them both and you can see it in the work is this equality and he was looking to his feminine self in conflict with his masculine and she the other way they became this kind of twin gender fluid pairing kind of looked quite physically similar in some ways and all the work was about balance reciprocity um, this kind of flow between them of identities that could be merged and could be exaggerated apart and they really were I mean it's interesting because there were obviously other artist duos who talk about sort of oneness you've got Gilbert and George who are you know contemporaries of, of these these artists that you know who are a living sculpture, who who have a singular identity in a mm. way. But the way that Ulai and Marina Abramovich took it on to an, extru- an extreme physical level is really quite a marker for why they're so distinctive, those works, right? Yeah, I think there's something between them which is to do with their oppositeness, meeting their sympathy... And it's a sort of magnetism of attraction and repulsion, which I think is very easy to relate to in terms of relationships and desire and the sexual attraction between them. And, you know, in that work, Rest Energy, one of their most famous works together, where he's pulling the bow with the arrow pointing towards her and she's actually holding it sort of onto her heart. And it's that absolute situation of trust but absolutely charged and poised for destruction. And you can see, you know, it's amazing how emblematic that image is. I mean, universally, maybe for turbulent relationships, but also for the way that their relationship did then play out over decades. Indeed. I mean, let's talk about that work a bit more, because from one of the things is you just described it there and it sounds the description sounds tense but it's difficult to convey how unbelievably tense it is to look at it isn't it i mean i find i mm. i find it very very difficult to watch because you know that even the slightest lack of concentration could cause a, an arrow to go through her heart or, or her chest or whatever it's it, it's it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to watch i find i agree and it's testament to how hardcore Marina Abramovich was with actually putting herself in these situations of extreme risk, as with her piece Rhythm O, which is 
the counterpart work by her that we have in the Tate collection. I think whatever we said about their turbulent relationship and the chargeness and tension, there must have been, and it's evident that there was in this equality as well, just such trust to be able to do that with him. Yeah. And that's part of it as well. There's a sense of risk and the sense of absolute collaboration <laughs> with your life. Yeah. And, th- and that commitment extended to... So when they are essentially physically harming each other in various different ways in, mm. in the exhibition space, when they're running hard at each other and bounce off each other, you know, they're causing each other injury. But there's an, it seems to me that there's an understanding there that they are equal parties in that. Because the yes. fact is, you know, a man running at a woman and causing them harm is is freighted with so much difficulty. But it seems to me that Marina's role in that is absolutely crucial because you don't just see her staggering back from her impact with Ulai. You see Ulai staggering back from his impact with her. Mm, so she's chosen someone or he's chosen someone who they s- seeing each other as equals, which feels really important. I think that's where the power in the work comes from. If there was any sense that his role was dominating her or really causing harm to her, it wouldn't work at all. It would just look abusive. Or um, I think it's that's what's so powerful about their story. And even when you then fast forward to the moment of them reconnecting at MoMA in 2010, that informs your understanding of the dynamics between them. Yeah. Because another really interesting thing is that if we just go sort of outside, well, actually, is it outside their work? I don't know. There is they they are living together in this tiny Citroen van for five years, I think. Mm. And they the way they describe it when you see them interviewed is 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 it like it was an, a totally idyllic life with their dog, you know, just in this tiny little van living life together. And yet, in the exhibition space, their relationship was played out in a much more as we say, sort of violent and tense way. That's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because on the one hand, there's a sort of idyllic life in private and then the public life was was much more strained. I think that's to do with the trust between them and it's something I've observed in pairs of artistic collaborators many ways. For example, Robert Rauschenberg and Merce Cunningham um, or Anna Imhoff and her collaborators. I think it's where there is that situation of absolute trust and harmony, the artists create a space for each other to go to the absolute extremes that they dare themselves to go to or that they desire to go to. And they kind of need that conversation with someone else to draw it out of them. I think that's what they gave each other. And and another emblematic work of theirs is Breathing In and Breathing Out, which is this work where they sort of plugged their noses and uh, joined mouths so that they were sharing breath and eventually passed out. Again, you know... Again, it is actually life and death, this Mm. stuff. But that's a drive in her work that's so strong. In fact, I would say, looking at each of their bodies of work, it's Marina Abramovich's drive towards those absolute extreme situations of masochistic risk that he was going along with in some cases. Because if you look at his own work, he's very interested in photography, in performing to the camera, in the presentation of himself, um, you know, he goes on to make these quite tender late works when he was ill in a collaborative situation, making these large-scale photograms where he's witnessed it being present and existing. But he has this primary concern with image-making 
And I think it's her, it seems to me, her drive towards those extreme endurance and risk that he's reciprocating in that relationship. One thing that's really interesting is that it seems to me that the relationship begins to unfold as the work begins to unfold really interestingly. So, you know, life and art are so much conjoined that the tensions in relationship begin to appear in the work. And there's this famous incident, which is where they're in a work where they have to sit opposite each other for a lengthy period. And it turns out that Ulai cannot sit for any longer. But Marina thinks, well, actually, I can. Yeah. And she continues to sit. And that 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 tells you something about where the point that you're just making that mm. she with that drive that she has to push everything keep pushing the the drive for endurance continues in her work much more than it does in his yeah i think he's got other concerns which we should talk about too but that piece night sea crossing is that what you mean mm, yes um it was interesting latterly to hear him talk about that and to talk about the time they spent in australia living in the outback for a year and the influence of meeting Aboriginal people, talking to them about their philosophy, and this idea of being present, um, a sort of meditative state of presentness. I mean, he and uh, Abramovich were both very interested in transcendental states and consciousness, and a lot of the work does have that kind of mutual willingness to get into an altered state, which I think they found in each other. They were each other's mirror and 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 kind of muse in that sense. Um, but it's it's clear to see that that piece, Night, Night Sea Crossing, made in the early 80s, absolutely fed into her pushing that idea to an extreme in The Artist Is Present later on in 2010. Yeah. Whereas his work, as we say, took a rather different direction. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that is the moment, and we will come back to the The Lovers, which is the last work that they made in their sort of first period of being in contact but but it is interesting that the moment where they have a form of reconciliation is a sort of mirror image of the of the the work where they started to pull apart so yes. he comes he's he's at moment in front of this big audience it must be yeah. said you know there was an enormous audience for the artistic presence so it's a in a way a very different kind of scenario he comes in and sits down opposite her she's not expecting it and she she does this thing where she looks down and then looks up at who who's the new person that's come to face her and there's Ulai opposite her, so it's it's a it's the, again power dynamics is it's extraordinary really. Yes, because the she has been reasonably open about the pain that she went through during their breakup, and when they did the piece, the lovers walking to meet each other across the Great Wall of China, walking 2,000 kilometres each um, with this plan, this work that they'd planned for years. Um, it'd taken them a long time to get permission to do it, and by the time they finally did it, the relationship was already disintegrating. So when they did finally meet, they didn't get married or whatever they'd kind of dreamed about at the beginning, but they actually broke up. Um, and I believe it was him that precipitated the breakup that's right well in in the in the art newspaper recently uh, she did an interview with tom seymour in which she tells him that he turns up and tells her that the, his translator is pregnant yes okay with with him i didn't know how <laughs> how out in the world that story was but yes exactly he'd fallen in love with his translator en route yeah. so she was devastated about that and they didn't speak to each other for 20 years i believe um and so the the MoMA meeting does represent this real 
intense moment of facing each other again. Facing each other was something that they'd done so intensely in the previous work. And it's just on a human level, this encounter between two people who loved each other. And it's incredibly moving when you look at it. However authentic or <laughs> or otherwise it is, we don't know, because there are all kinds of things going on behind the scenes as well about rights in the work and court cases and um, permission denied or given about shared imagery and things like that. But it's a work that went viral on YouTube because it does contain something I think is very universal. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, as you say, it, it really went viral. And I think 17 million views on YouTube of this video of them meeting again, which is interesting in the context of the fact that their careers did take enormously different paths in terms of their recognition yes. after that point. So the lovers, their last work together, and from that point onwards, Marina gains momentum and, and now is one of the most famous artists in the world. And Ulai's career can, doesn't follow a path even vaguely like that. No, that's what I'm actually, that's what I was going to say about the power dynamics that he'd ended the relationship um, at the end of The Lovers. And then by the time they saw each other again, she had risen to this power position. So the tables had turned in quite a dramatic way. And it wasn't just that MoMA was full of people in the or in the atrium of the museum. It was all over Instagram and other social media. It was really one of the first pieces of performance, I think, in an art context that had amplified in such a massive way on site and also online. So she'd really taken the seeds of performing to camera that he'd been interested in as much as her, plus the real-time presence of body art, and exponentially blown that up into something that took over you know, the media as a story and and was famous and big. Indeed. Um, but I think we should remember a work of his that was ahead of its time. His piece called There's a Criminal Touch to Art from 1976, um, which is an early activist piece, actually. And I think it's one that resonates a lot, again, with a younger generation. Um, he went into one of the Berlin museums and managed, goodness knows how, but managed to steal what was supposedly Hitler's favourite painting, this um, painted scene, and he, he took it out in the back of a van and installed it on the wall of a poor Turkish immigrant family um, and documented that and documented the family sitting there with this painting on their wall before alerting the authorities to the fact that he'd done it and getting arrested voluntarily <laughs> and getting it returned. But as an intervention into those circuits of power and representation, question of immigration, Germany's past, it was a pretty provocative and significant piece, I think. That is interesting because, as you say, in the period after the split, he returned to a kind of image-focused kind of practice. But that suggests that, this, that, that there was much more to his work. You know, that in, in, there was, there's an activist power, as you say, about his work, but also... Um, a completely different level of performance too, to mm. the kind of body-based performance that, that characterised his work with Marina. Exactly, because this work, There's a Criminal Touch to Art, was from 1976. So it was bound up with his investigation of photography. Um, and I think 
If she was more extreme in her approach to endurance and violence and masochism, he was thinking more about image networks, representation, um, the politics of representation in circuits beyond the immediacy of the encounter. And they were very complementary in that sense. Also, in that sense, it's interesting that the moment from her MoMA performance and all its success that went viral was the encounter with him because it still puts the two of them together. And I would say that he knew that when he went and sat down there, probably. Because apart from anything else, it also speaks about legacies. And I wanted to talk to you about legacies for performance artists. You and I spoke about Carolee Schneeman on this podcast mm. last year when she died. And now Ulai has passed away. And it occurs to me we are now at a moment where many of these artists, um, hope, you know, pleasingly many of the artists are still alive, but, many, but now we're at a stage where some are passing away. And we must begin thinking about their legacies all the more. Mm. And I wonder if you are able to speak to the artists while they're alive about this. Is this a subject that they want to address? Um, and, and what can museums do in terms of, you know, looking forward about how that legacy can continue? This question of the legacy of performance has been a really important one for me in my work at Tate Modern. And it's something we've taken seriously We've been in a network, actually, with other museums, including the Van Abba Museum um, and also MoMA, talking about representing performance because it hasn't been easy, but it's so fundamentally entwined with all the other kinds of art mediums we show. A lot of progress has been made in the past decade collecting video and photographic documentation and artists have absolutely reconsidered the status of some of those aspects of their work including Marina Abramovich herself and Ulai I would say I think whereas maybe when they were making the work and this is true also of Joan Jonas and um, probably of Carolee Schneeman as well Yvonne Rayner a lot of the artists when they were making the work were less concerned with how it was documented than with um, the experience in real time but they've developed often through an engagement with the next generation who want to see those videos and photographs and want to make work in that mode that looks like what they can see of what their predecessors did, that those things have taken on a new value. You could say it's a cynical move by the older generation cashing in on the documents they've got, but I really don't think it is. I think in most cases it's just thinking about legacy, thinking about the best way to leave something behind some of them have considered making scores out of older works um, but not all of them because for instance a, an artist like Tino Segal he uh, sells works to museums as a score mm -hmm. so the score is fundamental to the existence of the work Whereas these artists that were working in the 70s, they, weren't, they didn't have the idea of scores, of re-performance of, of the legacy on their mind when they were making them. No. And the whole art infrastructure, ecosystem, commercial system, museum situation has changed radically. So I think we can't blame them for not having anticipated that. I think Tino Segal, Roman Ondak, Tanya Bruguera, a number of artists who started saying that the scores for their work could be acquired did change the game for the older generation who started. And Tino especially 
didn't want a photograph in a vitrine. He didn't want a piece of typed paper in a vitrine. He wanted the real thing. But just that that intergenerational conversation and the fact that younger artists like Monster Chetwind or Tanya Bergera or Paulina Orlovska were reenacting works by the older generation meant that that dialogue has either prompted the older generation to preserve the documents they've got and sell them and place them in museums or to think about whether the work can be scored. And Rauschenberg, for example, had always been very clear you can't re-perform. Marina Abramovich was very clear that any of the works that are about high risk to her, such as Rhythm O, could never be re-performed. Other artists like Joan Jonas, who remade um, Mirror Piece with us in the tanks in 2018, was quite open to thinking about how that could be left behind as a choreographic score with elements of sculpture and costume. It's quite straightforward because it was never about her. That's really interesting. And and of course, you know, this, this autumn, Marina Abramovich has a retrospective at the Royal Academy in London. And there will be example, well, at least one example we know of, where a work by Marina and Ulai will be re- re-performed. So this is an interesting aspect, of course, where it comes to a collaboration. You mm. know, uh, she she clearly is happy for a for reperformances of her work to happen, but w- you know we have to assume that Ulai gave his permission too. But it's an interesting dynamic, that isn't it? Because yes. you know, where you have a collaboration, would the two artists have the same idea about how the work would be, w- whether the work should be reperformed? Well, I happen to know from other artist peers, there are all kinds of fights going on behind the scenes about exactly that issue. What was free collaboration in the 70s has turned into uh, museum and market (laughs) questions right now. But it's true that she has obviously in her MoMA retrospective as well re-performed many works. And by other artists as well. Yes. It's just that there are certain works of hers she cannot go back to because... They could involve her getting killed. So I guess it's a case-by-case basis. But it seemed that after they reconciled, they must have talked, I believe they must have talked about the appropriateness of doing their collaborative works again because his estate would still be involved with that. Well, it's an intriguing question and we'll see more of that in the autumn. But for the moment, Catherine, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. A survey of Ulai's work takes place at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam in November. And you can read more about Ulai, including Tom Seymour's interview with Marina Abramovich, in which she remembers the lovers that great last work at theartnewspaper.com. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper on the website. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julie Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing. Thanks to Mark and to Catherine and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we'll be looking at Titian's Poesia at the National Gallery in London. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.